turn to Acts chapter 6. We're going to look at the first six verses. So once you're there, it says, Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Hermanus and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. I just read in um, Warren Wearsby's book about two weeks ago, never put somebody on the spot with hard names to uh, pronounce. So I just sort of thought I'd test that out. No, <laughs> I'm kidding. I almost died when I forgot about the name. Say hey, two things before we begin. Uh, everybody turn around, wave at Frank in the back and tell him happy birthday. Happy birthday, Frank. And our friend Fernanda, who's watching online, George and Fernanda, it's her birthday today. So happy birthday uh, to Fernanda. Yeah. <laughs> so we're in the sixth uh, chapter of Acts, and if you're, you've been following along, then you're comfortable. You know where we are, but if you're just coming today, you might say, well, wait a second, you're only going to do seven verses, which, by the way, is a miracle in itself, but, but what do you mean? We're in the midst here of people serving tables and widows. How did we get here? So... If you've not been here before, I'm going to tell you here in five minutes how we got here. So Jesus Christ came into the world. You know it. He was born as a baby in the manger. Everybody know that story? Yeah, you hear it at Christmas. And why did he come? The Bible tells us. His, the, the, the people around him tell us. Because he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because men and women, all born in, uh, uh, to the world, have a sin problem. And the problem is, is that we're sinners by nature, the Bible tells us, and by deed, which means we've committed sins. So if we've committed sins, the Bible tells us that uh, if you've sinned, you fall short of the glory of God. And uh, the wages, the uh, fruit, the thing that you earn for sinning is spiritual death. So Jesus came to pay that penalty, the death. And so that's what the Gospels are about. Jesus came into the world. We see his life. He brings around some disciples. And we've been tracking through those Gospels in the last several years as we've been uh, teaching on Sundays. And so Jesus, after about three and a half years or so, he actually goes to the cross. Everybody with me? And he goes to the cross and God pours out his wrath as the sins of the world are placed on Christ at the cross, and he in our place paid the penalty for sin. He died. He actually did. He died. He didn't go into a coma-like thing or a swoon or he wasn't unconscious. He was dead. And they buried him in a tomb. And after three days, he rose again. 
He rose again, and this is what's important for you to know, that he appeared to many after he rose again. There were eyewitness accounts, and he did it for, you know, uh, several weeks. And after he had appeared and made it clear and talked to his followers, etc., he ascended into heaven. But before he ascended, right before he ascended, he told his followers to go into Jerusalem and wait for the helper the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father, who uh, the Father will send. And so they do. Jesus ascends into heaven. The Holy Spirit then, as, as they are waiting in Jerusalem in the upper room, comes upon the church. And we've studied all about that. And he comes upon the church in Acts 1 and Acts chapter 2. Remember, we're in Acts 6. And the reason I'm telling you this is, why in the world, if you've come here today, are we studying about these seven men who were chosen to serve? Because the book of Acts is the link between the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and us sitting here today. This is the early church. All of these people in this early church, not all, but these people that we're concentrating on, we're looking at, is a group of people who are called the church, the body of Christ, who are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Who's the Holy Spirit? The third person of the Trinity. How many gods do Christians believe in? One God, three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we're seeing now how the Holy Spirit comes into the lives or the life or lives of its people, of his people and moves and directs them in corporate worship life. We've seen it here in the early church, and actually, as I look out now, we're seeing it today. And later, we're going to have a food feast. And I guess we could call it a love feast, because we love one another. So, you're now here, and the reason these people are in this church let me take you someplace to John chapter 5. What do you mean I'm in the church? What does that mean? It means that they're followers, they're disciples, they're learners. What does it mean that I'm in the church? It means this. When Jesus was on the earth with his disciples, he told them a lot of things. And I'm just going to read you one little snippet. One little snippet while he was on the earth. And this, this, John chapter 5, verse 24. I could read from a million places, but because of time restraints, that's like the football highlights, isn't it? We move to the fourth quarter. But anyway, no, because of time restraints, I'm just going to read you one, and I don't want to overburden you. Jesus told his followers, most assuredly, I say to you, John chapter 5, verse 24, he who hears my word, listen, folks, you're going to hear his word today. He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me. Jesus is talking. He's talking about believing in the Father who sent the Son. And after the Son went back and seated, seated, is seated at the right hand of the Father, they, the, the Father sent the Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And here's what it says. Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word, you're going to hear it today, and believes in him who sent me. You have an opportunity to believe today. Believing is much more than just 
uh, intellectual assent. The Bible never talks about just agreeing that Jesus was God and he died for the sins of the world. Believing means you trust in it yourself. All that you are, you give to the Lord. You just say, I know I'm spiritually bankrupt. I don't bring anything to the table. I can't get to God, but praise the Lord. Jesus is the Savior who came to us, died for us, and rose again, paving our way or pioneering our way to heaven. I'm going to trust in Jesus for the payment of my sins, in my substitute, in my place. And when you do that, that's more than mental assent. You say, I'm giving my whole life because I know that I'm a sinner and I know that the wages of sin is eternal separation from God. I'm going to give my whole life and count on, to God and count on Jesus for my salvation. Boom! At that point, the Bible tells us in the first chapter of John, as many as received him or believed on him or believed in him, however you want to say it, as many as believed on him, to them he gives the right to become children of God. It's important that you know this, that these people aren't just coming to church because it's the thing to do. When that happens, when you surrender your life to Christ, one of the things that the Bible tells you happens is the Holy Spirit comes to live in your life and my life. And that's what makes you a Christian. It doesn't make you a Christian to go to church. It doesn't make you a Christian to give to charities. It doesn't make you a Christian just because you help people. What makes you a Christian is that you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and you've become born again. All born again means is that you've been given new life by the person and work of the Holy Spirit. You've repented of your sins. You've turned and said, God, I want everything you have for me. I'm trusting you. And in comes the Holy Spirit. You're a child of God. So listen, this is important. You're not just a child of God just because you were born. When you receive Jesus, you become a child of God. When you trust in Jesus. Now, listen, you are made in the image and likeness of God before you surrender your life to Christ. But I want to make it clear that these people we're studying about, these disciples, are born-again believers. And that's important for you to know. And now as we get to chapter 6 of the book of Acts, we're following the thing that God is putting together, his church, in the infant stages after Jesus ascended and the Holy Spirit came, the infant stages, Jesus said to his followers right before he went up into heaven, ascended, I want you to take the gospel, the good news, which is what I just shared with you. I want you, he says to his church, to take the gospel from into Jerusalem, which means just right around where they were, to Judea, another area, just sort of bigger, but right around where they were. Samaria, farther out to the ends of the earth. Everybody with me? That's the mission of the people we're reading about right here in Acts chapter 6. So if you haven't been with us, that's where we've been. And they start now preaching this gospel. And the Bible tells us, for lack of a better phrase, the religious people are sort of mad at them. And they keep getting in trouble. But they don't care because they've been given this mission from God and they keep preaching the gospel and saying the gospel. They're preaching and teaching. Everybody with me. 
And every once in a while in the book of Acts, it's like the Holy Spirit said, time out, Dr. Luke, from telling us the story. I want you to take a snapshot of currently what's going on in your church or the church. And he does it. He gives us summaries every so often. And here you go, folks. We've now come upon a summary. One more thing I need to tell you. The Bible tells us when you come into the family of God, when you're born again, or even if before, but the Bible says that we don't have conflict with flesh and blood, really. We think we do, but the Bible tells us that we have conflict. We battle against spiritual forces, the spiritual forces of the enemy. And we've seen in the book of Acts with Without him being mentioned a lot, although some, we've seen this enemy try to come into the church and destroy it. How did he do it first? He put them up against the religious leaders, tried to get them in trouble through the religious leaders. Didn't work. So he's now shifted into overdrive, the most insidious way in which this can happen, that the enemy can get at the church. And here's how it is from within. You, us, we. We can be divisive. And we can murmur against each other. And we can talk about each other at coffee and lunch and pretend we're praying for each other. Oh, hun, can you meet me down at the coffee shop so I can just sort of, we can talk about the thing that's going on at church. So we can pray about it when in reality, come on, we all know deep down we're all gossiping. We're murmuring. And what's happening here is a snapshot is being taken, John, Acts chapter 6, 1 through 7, and it has to do with the area of murmuring. Let me read it to you uh, uh, just again. Mike did such a wonderful job pronouncing all these names. Really, I didn't want to do it because I can't do it. <laughs> so thank for Mike. Now, in those days, what days? If you're new here and you're just following along today, in the days that the church is beginning to grow, we're still in Jerusalem. They're still in and about Jerusalem. Snapshot, let's look at the church, Dr. Luke says. In those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying. Now, I got to take a time out. Don't you love God's math? Because God's math was this. Go back to Acts chapter 2. God's uh, math was that verse 41, then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Now, fast forward just a little bit. Last time in Acts chapter 5, you and I talked about these, this married couple who tr wanted to look really spiritual, really pious. So here's what they did. They sold their land. And they went and took it down to the apostles to give the money to the apostles so the apostles could help feed. The apostles are 12, 12 men so that they could feed the people who are coming to Christ in Israel, or excuse me, in Jerusalem. And what they wanted to do was look really pious. So they sold the property for this amount. They gave the apostles 
this amount, but they said to the apostles, you get it? This was all we could get for the money or for the land. And there was this gap in there that they never told the apostles about, and God dealt with it. He hates hypocrisy. And in the early church, these people were struck down. Remember this? And we talked about in order for there to be power in the church, there must be purity. Remember. So think about the math. Here you got the Lord adding. The church is starting to grow. And what happens when things grow? There's lots, all kinds of conditions that happen. Like, why isn't that ministry being attended to? Or what this or that or that. And it's growing. And sometimes things can go unchecked or whatever. And here the Lord did some more math in Acts chapter 5 and he subtracted from the church. Before there's power in the church, there's usually a purifying. Does that mean the Lord's going to strike you down? I, I don't think so, but the consequences of sin are tough and devastating. And the Lord wants us to know that. He wants us to recognize that sin isn't something you just pat on the head and play with. Sin is devastating. And if you keep going down the road of sin, there's going to be a death. Maybe it'll be your marriage. Maybe it'll be your business. Maybe it'll be your testimony. But there will be a death. And now, praise the Lord, you turn to Jack's chapter 6 and you see the Lord's math continuing. Now he starts to multiply. Isn't that fascinating? So here in those days, what days, as the church is growing and these things are happening and they're ministering in and around Jerusalem. Now, one other thing, remember this. Everybody with me? Stay with me. Uh, Pentecost happened and a whole bunch of people got saved, about 3,000. And now more people have been getting saved through the first five chapters of uh, Pentecost, or excuse me, of Acts. And the last time... Luke told us, he said there were 5,000 men that were saved, which means there were women too that were saved and children. So how are you going to feed and house and minister to these people who probably came to the city from a long way away? So they all started chipping in. In fact, Barnabas sold his property and gave the money. Remember that? And then Ananias and Sapphira tried to, but they were hypocrites. But things were happening. So there's a lot of Christians in the city. They're multiplying. And when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint. Now, I use the New King James Version. I think in the King James Version, it actually says there arose murmuring. Is that right? Yes. People are telling me that's right. And that's because the New Testament is written in Greek. And the Greek word there, now I want you to catch this is murmur, murmuring, muttering. How about this one? A secret debate. A secret displeasure. Oh, boy. Not openly avowed. Uh, if you'll bear with me for a second, one pastor about 13 years ago, one pastor about 13 years ago wrote, How to Wreck Your Church in Three Weeks. And I'm going to read it to you. His name's Ray Ortland Jr. He wrote, How to Wreck a Church in Three Weeks. Week one, 
Walk into the church today and think about how long you've been a member, how much you've sacrificed, how underappreciated you are. Take note of every way you're dissatisfied with your church today. Take note of every person who displeases you. Meet for coffee this week with another member and, quote, share your heart, end quote. Discuss how your church is changing, how you are being left out. Ask your friend who else in the church has, quote, concerns. Agree together that you must, quote, pray about it. Week two, send an email to a few other concerned members. Inform them that a groundswell of grievance is surfacing in your church. Problems have gone unaddressed for way too long. Ask them to keep the matter to themselves for the sake of the body, quote, unquote. As complaints come in, form them into a petition, a petition to demand an accounting from the leaders of the church. Circulate the petition quietly. Gathering support, it's going to be easy. Even, even happy members can be used if you appeal to their sense of fairness, that your side deserves a hearing. Be sure to proceed in a way that conforms to your church constitution so that your petition is procedurally correct. You getting the idea? Week three, when the growing moral fervor, ill-defined but powerful, reaches critical mass, confront the elders with your demands. Inform them of all the woundedness in the church, which leaves you with no choice but to put your petition forward. Inform them that for the sake of reconciliation, the concerns of the body must be satisfied, must be satisfied. Whatever happens from this point on, you've won. You've won because you've changed the subject in your church. Well, listen to this. From gospel advance to your own grievances. Oh, boy. To some degree, you'll get your way. Your church will need three or four years for recovery. But at any future time, you can do it all again. It only takes three weeks. Ray Ortland Jr. I got to tell you, folks, one of the things that the Lord does not like is murmuring. And there's difference between a legitimate complaint and murmuring. In fact, if you look up Israel in the wilderness in the Old Testament, did you know this, by the way? Do you know that the Old Testament is written in Hebrew? Do you know that? Raise your hand if you know it. But do you also, oh, only a few of you, okay. You awake out there? You awake out there? Anyway, do you know also that in around 300 B.C. or so, I, I, I know the date, but anyway, 300 B.C. or so, B.C., the, down in Alexandria, Egypt, the Old Testament was taken and redone or translated into Greek. Did you know that? And it's called the Septuagint. And so in the Greek Septuagint, we find the word murmuring when Israel was in the wilderness in the book of Exodus. And in fact, remember, they were upset because they didn't want to have manna all the time. Can you imagine complaining about the miracle of manna? They didn't want to have manna all the time and meat. I mean, it was, come on. And water, come on. We should have just stayed back in Egypt. And it actually says... In Exodus 16, things like this. Moses said, this will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning. For the, listen, listen, listen. 
For the Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against him, which is fascinating. And the reason it's fascinating is because they were actually making the complaints to Moses and the leaders. And Moses said, you guys don't know what you're doing. The way in which you're complaining like this is you're uh, murmuring against God. Can you imagine? Listen to what they were saying. Uh, They were saying, they were saying, God, you have absolutely, positively no idea what you're doing. That's what they were saying. And because of it, you brought us out of Egypt. Can you imagine? He's bringing them out of Egypt to put them in the promised land. Because of it, you brought us out of Egypt and we're going to die here. We would have rather have just been back in Egypt. And that's the same word in the Septuagint, the Greek translation as what you're reading about right here in Numbers. You get me? You understand? So that when in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint. It's like... Um, you ever, uh, you ever been to a football game and, you know, you're sitting up in the stands and you can see the wide receiver running down the sideline wide open and the quarterback, you know, throws the ball and the ball's in the air and what happens to the crowd? The, especially if you're at a home game and the home team's going to score. The crowd starts going, ah, oh, and, the, and, the, and the, it gets louder and louder and louder and they go crazy when it happens. Do you know that? That's what that word means. There was this improper murmuring that was going like this and getting big. And that's a problem. So in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews. And I want you to see what the complaint was about. It was by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Now you need to know this. In the early church... There were lots of different people. There were, there were multi-ethnic things happening here. There were people from Egypt. There were people from all around the Mediterranean Sea. But within, and, and some of these Hellenistic Jews could have come from outside of Jerusalem at the Pentecost and stayed. But some of the Hellenistic Jews were already there. Now, time out. Just hold on with me. In 300 BC, do you remember this? Anybody ever heard of Alexander the Great? Yeah, you heard about Alexander the Great. In 300 BC, right in that area, Alexander the Great conquered the known ancient world. Boom, you remember. And he died really young, right? But what we don't get, because we didn't live at that point, is he forced Greek culture on that whole world. And it did something to a lot. I mean, people, people started dressing like the Greeks. People started speaking in Greek. That's why you have a Greek, but you see, and, and people started listening to the type of music the Greeks listened to and listening or reading the literature that the Greeks listened to and putting an emphasis on the values that the Greek society had and watch whether the Hellenistic Jews that they're talking about in Acts 6 either came from outside of Jerusalem or were in Jerusalem themselves. Watch, this is going to come to your hometown here in a minute. Or whether they were people who were already there. The traditional Hebraic Hebrew Jews sort of looked down upon the Hellenistic Jews. Why? Because they didn't keep the old ways. And you're starting to dress and sound and what are you? 
And this thing that had happened sort of crept into the church where you have all these people from all this time, different ethnicities, different political views, different ways in which they've been trained to think, different dress styles, different literature uh, tastes, different musical tastes, different food tastes, all of it. And the Holy Spirit comes into the heart of all these different people and they come and live together. What do you think would happen? By the way, look around. It's not too different today. And inside that, there arose murmuring. Now, I got to tell you, if you want to, the, the, the enemy of our souls knows that Jesus is victorious. So he wants to take us down and eliminate our testimony in any way. What's one ingenious way if he can't attack from without? Have it grow within. And he can get a foothold on somebody who feels they're being slighted. Oh, come on. That's the drop mic moment. You don't think the same way I do politically. You like rap music. I don't like rap music. I'm not saying I don't like rap music. I'm just making up a genre. <clears throat> you dress this way. You look this way. You look different than me. And what's interesting about it, we're not told right here, this is the most fascinating thing to me. We're not told right here whether the Hellenistic Jews really were being slighted or not. It just says they feel like they were being slighted, which is really interesting. Because perceived slights that didn't even happen can be a real problem to a church. Oh, that wasn't that good, huh? <laughs> I'm keeping somebody awake. <laughs> yeah. Are you catching that? Sometimes you feel slighted and it didn't even happen to you and it can wreck a whole church. I was reading up on this this week and I found one church split that happened because they were having a fellowship meal and an elder in the church went behind a little boy and the server gave two pieces of ham to the little boy and one piece of ham to the elder. And the elder sat down and started fuming and started making a war with that little boy's family and the church split. It took a long time, but that was the impetus of the whole thing. Perceived slights. Or may, maybe it was a slight. We're not told. But you have these two groups, Hellenists. They were ne neglected in the daily distribution. What was the daily distribution? Remember, there were tons of people in Jerusalem. The apostles were taking care of 5,000 plus. It was multiplying. It was exploding. And every day, what? They had to feed these people, right? And this, this phrase here means they even clothed them and tried to get them places to sleep and house and all that sort of thing. You with me? And so... One of the things that's near and dear to the heart of the Lord, wouldn't you say this as you read the Bible? Pure and undefiled religion. What is helping who? Widows, orphans. 
So the Lord's heart is tender towards widows. And I got to tell you, the Lord doesn't care if they're Hellenists or Hebrews. I mean, his heart is for them is what I'm trying to tell you. Or anybody else, the Lord wants to help and has compassion on them. So this is a near and dear issue to the heart of God, which manifests itself in a legitimate, wonderful ministry to the widows. Everybody with me? And within that thing, there are some who have sort of this thing against each other. And they're going to, either real or not real, start murmuring and make it real loud in the church, cloaked under things like prayer and concern and I'm hurt, etc. Okay. What, what does the Bible say about it? Philippians 2. If you just want to read Philippians 2, if you feel like that today, here are some things that both we can do and both you can do. Because the Bible says this in Philippians 2. You should read the whole chapter about murmuring. But it says this, do all things without complaining and disputing. I'm not a great genius right there. But that seems pretty clear to me. Do all things without complaining and disputing. You know, sometimes you're going to bring to the leaders of the church a ministry idea. That ministry idea might do well uh, or might be uh, fit into, not do well, might fit into the philosophy and the core values of the church, but maybe it wouldn't. And hopefully we could do both our, you know, the leadership side and the people bringing it to us, do all things without complaining and disputing, and then be hospitable to one another, 1 Peter 4, 9, without grumbling. And we could go on and on and on. And what I want you to see is a healthy way to resolve these sorts of issues in the church. Why? Because the enemy wants to tear us apart. And we don't want to be apart. You know, there's people in here, folks, do you know this? That if you put them on the political spectrum, they'd be way over here. And there's some people sitting in this room, if you put them on the political spectrum, they'd be way over here. And there's some people in between. And the funny part about it is the people over here think the people over there believe like them. And some people over here look across the aisle and go, those people believe like I do. And they don't. Just the way it is. But we're all brothers and sisters if we've trusted in Christ, folks. So how do we resolve conflict in a right way so that there isn't murmuring? By the way, time out. I'm going to take a time out. I'm not asking you, nor do I think the Bible ever says to you, to have blind faith in the leadership of the church or the, uh, I think the Bible says that you should honor the leaders of the church, not just because I'm saying it, the Bible says it. You should have respect toward the leaders of the church, of course. But by the way, the leaders of the church should have respect for you. And the Bible tells us that the leaders of the church should help you with your joy. We should be helpers of your joy. And the way in which we learned it today in the Warren Wearsby lesson, that the church should be run is with love truth, and discipline. Listen to the last one. Love, truth, and discipline, just like you would at home. 
Would you leave out discipline at home? You better not. You're going to have a bunch of brats living in the world. But you love them. It's not harsh discipline. It's loving discipline. And you tell them the truth and they learn the truth. And that's the same way we're doing here. So how can we look at this and in a healthy way resolve conflict, specifically murmuring or watch? There might even be a hint of some ethnic or racial overtones here as well. Because the first thing that we should understand is that the Bible tells us there's neither Greek or Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. I don't care what we look like, how rich we are or poor we are or where we go or where we live. In Christ, we're all one. Our identity is Christ. Not our skin color, not our political party, not our bank account, not our job. Our identity is that we're Christ, we're in Christ and he is in us. Don't you just love that? It's so freeing. I'm just so free now as the Lord comes into my life and your life. We're just so free to love others with no agendas, just because we love you authentically. So beautiful. So. How do we resolve this, or how do they resolve it as a model for, for how we're to resolve it? Well, the first thing they do, the 12, remember Judas is gone and Matthias has come in, so there's still 12, 12 apostles. Uh, the 12 do something interesting. And these are sort of the leaders of the church. We might call them elders, but you know, sort of the leaders of the church, the apostles, the one who are pastor teachers, the one who are leading the church, feeding the flock. That's who these folks are. Sort of the leaders of the church, and they summon the multitude of the disciples and say, here's what they said. I want you to see this. I want you to see something really healthy about what these 12 did with an unruly group of 5,000 plus. Not really unruly. You just have this thing that's happening. What? Here's what you could do. Here's one thing you could do as the leaders of the church. Hey, could you people shut up and stop talking? That's one thing you could do. Squelch it. Uh, go quietly to them. And by the way, if it's one person, you might want to do it in a private manner first because the Bible tells you to. But here, oh, geez, and, and let, let's talk about this together. Do you notice that? The, 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 uh, the elders said, we want to listen to what you have to say. And I want you to see something. They never kicked anybody out for this. They knew that there was a difference of opinion and they knew that the power of Christ could bring people together. So they didn't squelch it. I think that's important. They didn't squelch it. And they listened to the complaint. And the Bible tells us that, I want you to write this down, especially if you're a man. Because it says it. <laughs> Let every man... It applies to you too, ladies, but let every man be swift to hear and slow to speak. Ladies, it applies to you too. Let every man be swift to hear and slow to speak. How is it healthy between the elders or leaders of the church and the congregants or the fellowship is that people want to be heard? Now listen, folks, come on. We don't need to hear that your donut was out. If your donut was out, your donut was out. Sorry. If the guy sat in your chair, come on, you don't need to call a meeting with the elders. 
right? But why? Why? It's biblical. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. It's not even a sin. You don't have to come to the elders because, you know, the uh, Facebook went out and you couldn't view at home. Well, okay. What do you want me to do about that? We're talking about when things in the church are happening that are central to the church. You listen. You come to the elders appropriately, not with that ominous tone. Do you know what you guys are doing? Not that. We're, we're on the same team here, folks. We're not enemies. You come to each other and you say, oh, you know what? That's not working. Uh, okay. Uh, why? Okay. Let's think about that. Let's pray about that. Uh, you come and you listen and you hear. How about this? Could you put that quote up by Dietrich Bonhoeffer? In Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, it's talking about body life, is he says that the first service uh, that endears, I can't read my writing, that one owes, there you go, to others, that one owes to others in the fellowship consists of listening to them. Just as love for God begins with listening to his word, so the beginning of love uh, for the brothers is learning to listen to them. It's because of God's love for us that he not only gives us his word, but also lends us his ear. You know, one of the great things you can do to love somebody is listen to them. And you know, you ever had the person do this? You're talking to somebody and they're doing this. Okay. Oh, yeah, okay. Or they're shaking their hand and they're looking the other way. You ever had somebody do that? You're shaking the hand and it's like, you're bothering me, but I'll shake your hand and say, what's up? You ever had that? Look at people. Listen to them. And here, in the midst of this, instead of murmuring, the apostles, the leaders of the church, say, no, we're not going to do that. How about come and talk to us? We're not enemies. We're on the same team. We love one another. We're devoted to you in love. We're helpers of your joy. Come, we'll listen to you. And by the way, in this particular instance, as the sort of the organization of the church was growing, it looks like that the elders go, oh, wow, yeah, maybe they weren't getting fed. So we'll come up with a plan. But I want you to see point number two. Not only listen together, we're not on the same, or we're not on opposite sides, we're not enemies, not only listen, look at this. Watch this. The 12 apostles teach the congregation or the multitudes while they're listening. Did you catch that? And here it is. They go this. They summoned the multitude of disciples, and it says, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. And I'll go on. Uh, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, who we may appoint over the business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. I want you to see something. They're teaching. There's this mutual listening and going back and forth so that we can squelch the murmuring. Because murmuring, God doesn't like. But if there is a legitimate cause or concern, and they come to the elders, and the elders say, oh, listen, I want you to know something. We've been called in the church, Ephesians Ephesians chapter, oh, I'm holding up six fingers, Ephesians chapter four, to this body life, and we've been called, these elders had to have said, 
to prayer and studying the word so that we can teach. Because after proclaiming the gospel, the best thing for a church is the teaching of God's word. Are you getting that? So in order to teach, I don't know if you know this, but you got to study. And you need to spend time doing that. And what they're saying was here is that there is a priority at our church. That's what they're saying. And I'm saying it now. And the priority here is that you folks learn the word of God and obey it so that you'll become healthy sheep. I'm the shepherd. It doesn't mean some weird thing. I'm not shepherding you like the weird shepherding movement. I've just been called to be the shepherd. I love you. I care for you. I want you to grow. I want to feed you, but I want you to feed yourself too. And I want you to be on your own and grow. And I want to equip you so that you can have this. And that's how our leadership here is. We love you. We're not some weird thing lording something over. No, we're helpers of your joy. And we want you to grow. So the priority, listen, for the pastors is to spend time in prayer and the teaching of the word. I wrote down some statistics from pastors. I hope I can find them. If I can't, I remember them, sort of. One pastor estimated that you should spend at least 15 to 20 hours for every sermon you preach. And that's studying. And on top of that, he suggests that you, if you don't pray for the people you're doing a great disservice. You're only doing 50% of the work. Did you just catch that? In fact, one guy, Dr. Nathaniel Van Cleve says this, if you preach for one hour to 100 people and you're ill-prepared, you just wasted 100 hours of God's time. Did you catch that? You just wasted 100 hours of God's time. And now speaking on the other issue of prayer for the pastor or for the leaders, a minister was observing a poor man down by the roadside, breaking stones with a hammer and kneeling down to get at his work uh, for, for the better. And the minister said to him, Hey, John, I wish I could break the stony hearts of my hearers as easy as you are breaking those stones. And the man looked up and replied, Yeah, Uh, sir, but you'd have to work on your knees. So what I'm saying is this group of people, the apostles were expressing a reality that endures today. If you're going to teach the people, you have to be devoted to prayer and the word and studying and communicating it. You got it? So That in Ephesians 4 is what God's called some of us to do here, but not all of us. But the priority is that you people get fed, that we get fed together and we grow together so that the pastor who's not above serving, he would go and serve at the community meal. But if he's going to spend 15 to 20 hours on every sermon, I don't spend that long, but I spend a lot, but I'm not going to tell you, but I... If he's going to do that, how in the world is he going to orchestrate the food fellowship on Sunday afternoon? How? Even for a fellowship of this size. And how is he going to pay the bills? And how, 
I mean, actually cut the checks. How's he going to do that? And how's he going to counsel people? And how's he going to go to the hospital? And how's he going to do this? And how's he going to do that? How's he going to do that? And there has to be this give and take. And what they're teaching in this, and that's what I want you to focus on, they're teaching the core values of the early church. What was the core value of the early church? That after the gospel was proclaimed, the word was taught. And you have to have people who are dedicated to it, to do it. Which means, and this is the good part, (laughs) praise the Lord, I can't fix anything. I mean, praise the Lord. I used to fret about it. Jan just feels so blessed by it, you know what I mean? And you know, you wonder yourself, oh Lord, and you beat yourself up. I mean, my brother could fix anything, anything. You might be like that. I can't fix anything. And I wondered all my life, why in the world is it that I can't fix anything other than the fact that I am not interested one iota to do it? But I think I know. Because when we get to the church, here we go, being a type A personality, I might have been tempted to do it all. Everything. And I walk in here, and this place is, okay, yeah, but how are we going to have church in here? And you got John Kennedy. (laughs) And tons of people who would come at the time and take down the plaster and redo the carpet and do and Xander and and do all this and paint. And, you know, and then other people started to come around. And here's the blessing of it. The core values of the church is to equip saints for their ministry. And if the person at the head is a control freak and does it all, how will they ever get a chance to do it? Praise the Lord. I can't fix anything. (laughs) And I think this is what's happening here. The priority is the word. People get raised up around that ministry, not that, right? To help do the daily functions of the church so that the people who are teaching, not, they're not better or worse. You get it? It's just different. They have time to study so that we can give the word to you and the Holy Spirit can use it and you are fully devoted and you grow and you go out and you do your ministry and at the end, the Lord's kingdom is built. And it's not about control and it's not about you versus me. It's just that here comes some murmuring and we know it's deadly. What can we do? You get it? I mean, it is amazing what these guys do. In fact, you know, the Bible calls us just to, as I read earlier, esteem others more highly than yourselves. In those instances where there is an issue, if we would esteem others more highly than ourselves, and I'm talking both ways here, because we're all brothers and sisters. We're just in different roles. Wow, how, how beautiful that would be. Well, What are some other things that they did? They taught while they listened. You get that? They listened and they taught. And therefore, brothers, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation. I want you to see this. This is generally thought of as the chapter that establishes deacons. Anybody know what a deacon is? A deacon is basically someone who helps do the service in the church, serving people, running the day-to-day operations, that sort of thing. What's funny is it never uses the word deacon. It uses some of the other words for service and ministry that's close to a deacon serving, but it never uses that. But anyway, 
he says, well, listen, or they say, hey, we, we aren't going to be able to serve the tables because we're devoted to the ministry. So look, we got a big group here. That's what the apostles are saying. How about you guys look around and see who's already doing ministry? They're men full of integrity. What does that mean? I mean, they do things in the right way. They're responsible. They're godly. If you give them a task, they do it, and they don't cut corners, and they don't cheat, and they don't do any of that, and it's done, and it's good, and it's beautiful. They're already doing it. Look around to find the people who are already doing it. You get it? And then they say, find among you uh, seven men of good reputation. People in this big group knows that they're already serving, and they're full of the Holy Spirit. And I could go on and on and on about full of the Holy Spirit. We must be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we've talked about that at length over the last couple, uh, or well, month. But I want you to see something. The Holy Spirit is peaceable. And what will happen? There will be fruit that starts coming out of a person's life. Love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, kindness, Kindness. I really want to stress kindness. Self-control. That'll start coming out of a person's life. Look for that. Uh, here, here's some other things. Uh, they have wisdom. Now, what's wisdom? You know, in James, he talks about there's a sensual, demonic wisdom. that's sort of worldly wisdom. But there's also supernatural wisdom that can take the word of God and apply it. It's not just knowledge. It's knowledge applied in certain situations. Like, which college to go to? Where in the Bible does it tell you which college to go to? Which job to take? Where in the Bible does it take, tell you which job to take? Doesn't. Who to marry? Which, anyway, who to marry? Which, which, where in the Bible does it tell you who to marry? Where to stay single? Where, anyway, it does tell you that. But you, you get what I'm saying, right? So you have to have uh, knowledge because, or wisdom because you're going to encounter situations like this one in the book that's very complex. You get that? And then whom we may appoint over this business. They run the day-to-day -day affairs of the church. They help pay the bills. They're in the finance team. They have a checkbook. They can be trusted. You see that? <laughs> and the reason why I think they told him this is because these people were going to have their hands in the money. They had to be people of integrity, full of the Holy Spirit. You get it? All right. Now, I got a point here. But we're going to give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Why? Because that's our core value. Now, if you haven't figured it out, what's the core value here? It's teaching of the Word. It's an emphasis on grace. And if you think grace, just read Titus to know what grace is. Read Titus. It's to equip people for their ministry. And that's a core value. Everything we do, we want to say, is the word being taught or is the word there? We don't want to just do things for the sake of doing them. It's a core value. We want to love. We want to love people, not just people who look like we do, other people. We want to evangelize and bring people in. Don't you want to evangelize? And we could go on and on. Those are some core values. Okay, watch this. And the same pleased the whole multitude... And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip and these other guys, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles 
And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied. And the idea there is they came and set these guys before the apostles and the apostles said, oh, we've looked over those, those guys' lives and we approve. That's, those are good picks. We're going to appoint them as people who help run the business of the church. And you're like, okay, well, get along. Or, or get on with this, is what you're saying. I know you're saying that. Now comes the punchline. What an amazing, wise thing these people did. You know what they did? If you read these names, these are all Greek names, Hellenistic names. Did you catch what they just did? There was a complaint that the Hellenists were being overlooked. Whether it was real or not, I do not know. But they prayed about it first. They asked the multitude to look around and see who was already doing this stuff. Give us some recommendations. Bring them to us. And the Holy Spirit worked it out, and the people picked, watch, and the apostles appointed Greeks to help the people who were being overlooked, the Hellenists, the Greeks. And you're like, well, what, what's the big deal? You remember in Nehemiah chapter 3? No, you might not. So I'll tell you. In Nehemiah chapter 3, in the Old Testament, there, the walls around Jerusalem had been destroyed. And you know what God did in his wisdom? He got all the people who lived there to work on the walls. But guess where they worked on the walls? Right outside their houses. Why do you think they did that? So they'd do a great job. They wanted to be protected. And I think the same thing's happening here. The Greeks were appointed over the Greek ladies who were widows, so they do a great job. Isn't that wise and good? And so this thing gets resolved. And nobody's fractured, and nobody's leaving, and nobody's off in a huff, and nobody's murmuring in the shadows. They just bring it out in the open. They talk about it. Now, i got to tell you, sometimes the suggestion might not work. But that's okay too, because we're brothers and sisters and we want to bless one another and we're devoted to one another. You catching that? So sometimes it might not work. But now, the final punchline. Why is this story in there? It's a snapshot, but now watch, it's a link to the, the next couple chapters of the book of Acts. Why? Because none of these people are really known again, in the Bible, except two of them, except one might be known. Some people believe Nicholas was a Nicolaitan who started a, a sect that went away from traditional, um, I'm pointing at Jessica because we talked about this the other day, uh, pointed a sect that sort of went off the rails and got real goofy. And in Revelation chapter 2, there's a reference to the Nicolaitans. Some people believe Nicholas was mentioned in Revelation 2, but really... If that's not him, the rest of them, other than Philip and Stephen, or Stephen and Philip, aren't mentioned again. But what did Stephen become? He became an evangelist and the first martyr. And you're going to see that in the next chapter. And what did Philip become? He started to take the gospel into Samaria. Stephen, you know this? And he addresses all these, the, 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 the council again, and he does a great job. And so, Here's the point, the final point. It'll take me about 20 minutes to get through this. 
some of you might go, well, all I'm doing is serving people these bagged lunches. See? <laughs> and the Bible tells us in Colossians 3, 23 and 24, whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. If the Lord has called you to serve tables, who cares? He's called you to serve tables. Do it as unto the Lord. And I just got to tell you this. I'm just going to have to be honest with you right here. You get some people that start coming to the church and about one month in, they want to preach. And you're like, well, I don't even know you. The elders don't know you. Why don't you just serve in table ministry for a while or chair ministry or greeting ministry? Why don't you just come and know us for a while and serve and be a table servant or whatever? I, I, I don't know, whatever it is. And you know what? In about 1.1 seconds, you're going to know whether their heart's right. Here's why. They're going to go, eh, I want to preach. Hmm. Are you after the Lord's glory or your glory? And these guys must have served in amazing ways. How do I know? Read verse 8. I promised you I'd stop at 7, but I'm not going to. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. I'm going to read you one thing, and then we're going to close. Matthew 25. Go there. Go to Matthew 25. verse 23, or well. There's this thing called the parable of the talents. You know this parable? This guy who owns a, or has servants and delivers goods to them, and he gives five talents to one, two to another, and one to another, and he goes away, and the first two invest the talents and get more money back. One guy hides the talent. And the Lord comes back and he says this to the one who multiplied the five talents, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. Listen, you were faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. There's a great principle, I think, in the family of God that Jesus sets forth. is that if you're faithful in just something small, God may, maybe not though, He may enlarge your ministry. But watch, folks. If you do that in a shoddy way, you don't show up, you don't complete it, you don't do it, you, you say you're going to do it and you don't do it, you, you, it's not against me or the elders. The Lord will take you. And the problem for some of us is we don't want to come up through the ranks. We just want to start, what I would say here, as the pastor or the teacher or whatever, whatever it is you want to start at. You guys, many of you have been to see the Jesus Revolution this week. Pastor Chuck would get somebody like that at his church in Costa Mesa 
And he'd say, oh, you want to serve in the ministry? Wonderful. Grab the mop and hit the men's room. And these guys that you see, like Greg Laurie, Greg Laurie picked up cigarette butts and cleaned up the grounds of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa for a while. (laughs) And so there's this thing that we start there. Now, we'll end, but I want you to see something. There's no room for grumbling and murmuring. If you have something, just come talk to us. And if we have something, then come to you. And I hate even saying you and we. We're not. It's us. We're brothers and sisters. We're not, on the, we're not enemies. Come and no murmuring. Of course you can have a suggestion or a concern. That's okay. It's wonderful. And we'll be listeners. And we're going to try and tell you our core values. And if we have the resources to do it and it fits the mission of the church, well, yes, maybe that's what's something that we should get involved in and do. But only if it gives God glory and furthers his kingdom. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we come and we lift these things up and we pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts, that you would fill them up, that we would have the joy, the joy of the Lord as our strength, And Lord, help us to love one another and to be kind, even if we disagree. Give us supernatural power and strength to do that. And if there's anyone in here who's never surrendered their life to Christ, I pray, Lord, they'd come up and we give our lives, give, give their lives to the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.